guys, and welcome to Slash Report. I'm joined, as usual, by my, I don't know, pinky to my brain. Hey, MK. Wow, thanks. Pinky was awesome. Everyone liked Pinky better. And we have our special guest this week, Temple Marker, who's going by T. Welcome to the show, Temple Marker. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, we were super excited to get you because I think that as we go to the end of the year and look forward to 2012 and what terrible slashy movies may be coming along, the entire Marvel universe just like smacked us in the face and we had to recognize that we just like we're not kung fu enough with comics to cover this on our own so we had to beg your beg your indulgence on this one only if by terrible movie you mean like staggeringly awesome movie i've had a long running discussion with mk about this because i'm like that's so many characters we'll see whether or not they can balance it well well that's very true and it does have a slight possibility that it's going to go terribly terribly wrong but the thing to think to know about the avengers film is that it's basically the culmination of half a decade's worth of, of development and work to tell you this story, which is so different from how, like, so many other comic book movies are that I think it has a pretty good chance of succeeding. Did you write that comic that shows the DC and Marvel headquarters next to one another? <laughs> Marvel is, like, carefully crafting this genius work. DC <laughs> trying to decide whether or not... <laughs> Wonder Woman wears pants. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that sounds just about as accurate as you can get. It hurts me inside because I'm a DC girl. Like I'm not, I'm not really into Marvel. Like I enjoy the Avengers a lot, but outside of that, I'm like, yeah, Marvel, whatever. I just want DC Marvel. to do really well, and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's the thing is, it's very hard to compare like Marvel, the comic books, from Marvel the films because they're done so differently and they're approached so differently, and yeah. a lot of the stuff that's that's done really, 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 really poorly in Marvel is done awesomely in their film. Well, and I, that, I, I have to say, so I have no background in comic books. And I, and for a reason that I will bring up later, because I would like for you to sort of like address this um, a little bit. But having watched all the Marvel movies for like Captain America and then for Iron Man, and then going back and trying to access the original source material, the movies are so much more comprehensible and less soap operatic in a weird way. I mean, like, which is ridiculous because they're blowing up New York every day, but it's it's so much less melodrama than the comics are. <laughs> well, you have to understand that so much of the comics is, is centered around, like, well, and not so much, but one huge element of Marvel Comics is the epic operatic love story between Magneto and Xavier. And everything kind of radiates out from that as how crazy can this shit get? And because they're both extremely, extremely crazy, and they've done so many crazy things to these two characters, like everything else kind of stands in the, the shockwave of, of what they do. Worst breakup ever. <laughs> See what's Worst funny? never-ending breakup ever. <laughs> I thought when you started saying, like, this epic couple or whatever, I thought you were going to say Jean Grey and Cyclops, because I hate them so much. <laughs> Why? Come on! I hate them. They're so annoying. Like, nobody is more annoying than Jean Grey and Cyclops and their fucking love story. Well, you're terrible. They're adorable. They're just, like, I wanking off. I wanted to be Jean Grey when I was little. Oh, no, I wanted to, like, murder her. Well, it's kind of a crazy too, dude. Like, not to diss on Jean Grey. She had some awesome moments, like, especially when she went to the dark side a little bit. But <laughs> that's when she got interesting. Before that, she's kind of, look at the most pretty and perfect 
mutant in the world. That's exactly what it is. Well, even when she went dark side, she was Mary Sue. Like, she's an (laughs) Omega-class mutant. She's the phoenix. She's gonna kill Professor... First of all, nothing's ever gonna kill Professor X. No. That fucker is gonna live forever. And then when his corporeal body dies, he's gonna sneak under Eric's hat and live in his brain and give him shit forever about how his cholesterol is too high, okay? Like, that guy's never going to die. You saw that bonus at the end of... I don't know which one of the X-Men movies it was. It was, like, the last X-Men movie before X-Men First Class, where, uh, uh, like, Xavier dies. Maybe? It's, like, Xavier dies in the movie, and then at the oh. end he, like, wakes up inside someone else's body in the hospital, like a coma patient. Was it a sexy coma patient? I can't remember, because I uh, don't you're see not, faces. Like, this is not focusing on the important parts. I don't see faces. You know that. But moving on. All right. But so dialing back a little bit, part of the thing that I was saying, like, I think that this, to me at least, is the biggest mitigating factor for a lot of people getting into comics is that it's so complicated. It's so sprawling. Like, where do you begin? There's not a single canon to follow. It's not like you can isolate, like, watch these three episodes and you'll get it because they're like alternate universes and fragments and reboots and like different versions for different age groups. You know, like, how do you get past that part? Well, eventually you start to see that not as a hindrance, but as, like, the most awesome part about it. But the the best place to start, at least, when I, when I was, I started reading comic books when I was a teenager. And my first experience with comic books is not the norm. I started reading Buffy comic books because I was obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And they had uh, this sort of, like, ancillary series that they were doing in comic books, and I had never read them before. And one of my friends sent me a bunch of Buffy comic books, and I read them all in, like, two days, and I was like, this is awesome, I need more! And so, it's kind of like cocaine. You try it once, and then you're like, yeah, I need all of it, all the time. So, sometimes people start in a in a weird little offshoot corner of comic books, where it doesn't have any real bearing on, on like, the main two publishing houses, which are DC and Marvel, for people who are unfamiliar. And then um, there's a bunch of smaller or medium-sized comic book houses, publishing houses, or imprints of the two main ones. So there's uh, Image, there's Vertigo, there's Wildstorm, although Wildstorm just died and got absorbed into DC. There's Dark Horse, and then there's all the indie publishing houses. So like Oni, uh, which is based here, or based in Portland, Oregon. And then all the tiny, super tiny runs, um, which usually aren't serious, but are just like someone's epic, dramatic work that they want to share with the world, and they do it through an indie uh, an, an indie house. But usually the best way to do it is to just, like, is to pick one of the two main houses, so DC or Marvel, and then pick one tiny little complete storyline in DC or Marvel and see if you like it. Because if you like it, then you'll be able to put up with a whole lot of crazy bullshit once you go out beyond that single storyline. But if you don't like the single storyline, you're probably not going to be that enthusiastic about comics in general. So for DC, like Bruce Wayne Murderer, epic, perfect. Complete story, introduces all of the characters, gives you the epicness of the Bat family. Like, that's where I would start if you have any interest in comic books at all. What about one from Marvel? For Marvel, especially going into the new Avengers movie, I'm going to wreck. So the, the last major... Captain America storyline. The thing about Captain America in Marvel is that he dies a lot. Like, he dies more than any other character. And he comes back, and then he dies again. And so in my bookstore, my local bookstore, when Captain America died this last time, which was like three years ago, two or three years ago, they put a little um, gravestone on, on the trades page or the trade shelf 
Captain America dies again, but don't worry, he'll be back. And that's basically <laughs> the entire thing that you need to know about Captain America going into going into the film, going into the books. Whatever you think is going to happen to Steve Rogers, is not, that's not what's going to actually happen to Steve Rogers, because he'll always come back. There's a, a Captain America run that started uh, around just before issue 600, because <laughs> it's been running a really long time, and it's... It's this whole lead up, which is part of a much longer and worse storyline that I won't recommend. Um, but I will, I'll, on the website, I'll detail which uh, trades you should go for to get involved in Marvel and the wonder that is Captain America and his awesome sidekick, Bucky. Oh, I love Bucky. The guy who plays him in the movie is from Kings. Is he? Yeah. And apparently he signed up for like six more movies or something. I love him. He's awesome made me cry like a bitch yep well and the nice thing about bucky too is like they made bucky this kind of like smooth bastard in it which i didn't expect because in the comic books uh steve has been captain america for so long that bucky's like i'm a sidekick and that's cool and in the film he's like i'm gonna fuck a lot of people and it's gonna be great (laughs) i was thrilled by that i think the the reason that Captain America got me so hard, right? It was actually really tragic. I went to see with two coworkers who I basically tricked into coming to the theater with me by telling them I found this amazing movie theater, which I did. I just didn't tell them that we were going to watch Captain America and that I was going to cry. So we got there and like, we're watching the film and the theater only seats like 45 people. So if you guys have um, any Londoners listening to this, East Londoners specifically, if you've never visited the Albin theater or the Albin cinema, it is amazing. They're not seats, they're couches. And Mm. every seat has a wine cooler next to it. So you can buy a bottle of wine and go in and just drink straight out. It's beautiful. But so we were in this theater and I'm like leaking tears horribly. Like I just cried through like three quarters of this movie, right? And my coworker leans over and he's like, are you having allergies or are you actually crying? (laughs) And I turned to him in like my drunken slur, like my mouth covered in popcorn comes like, fuck you, Bucky is amazing. got me so hard is that traditionally in these sorts of movies like these action movies like if you go to the 80s and 90s template like the best friend on some level betrays them right like he's gonna break your heart in a bad way but steve and bucky were such good friends and they were totally 100 positive influences on each other and i didn't expect that and i kept waiting with my heart in my throat to be somehow let down or disappointed or bored or angry about it but their friendship was pitch perfect yeah i loved it I was just like, besties forever. And and then he died on the side of the mountain, and I just lost it. It's okay, he's coming back. Exactly. I mean, he quote-unquote died. Like, he he didn't really die. He's just going to come back more often. (laughs) Nobody ever dies in any media, ever. (laughs) (laughs) And that rule is, like, taken to 11 when it comes to comic books. Like, you can name almost any character, and they'll have an epic story of their death. And then the epic story is their return and how they started once more. Yeah. All right, so that sounds good. Um, I think that your method sounds accessible and doable for people. Talk to us about the Avengers. What sort of background should people getting into this fandom know? Like, if you want to know some comics background for the Avengers, what should you look up if you don't want your head to start spinning next May? They started a long time ago. They started in the 60s, which was kind of the heyday of comics. Like, they were available for... 10 cents at every drugstore around the country, and so they mass-produced them and really shitty quality, and everyone could read them, and it was, you know, it was great. It was a halcyon time. They didn't cost 
three or four dollars just to buy one issue of a comic book. Not that you're bitter or anything. No, no. I mean, sure, that's inflation or <laughs> one of the two. There's also no reason, just for the record, that a digital comic should cost the same amount as a print comic because it's a digital media. Like, that's its natural element. It just, uh, it's just not cool. Anyway, so it started in the 1960s as a way to get a bunch of their disparate heroes together in the same title. And uh, and usually when they make teams, right, back in the day, they were designed to get people interested in the other heroes or the other villains that they were writing about in different titles. Because, like Prue mentioned before, one of the hardest things about comics is that you can have, um, say, Batman be over here doing this one awesome crime-fighting thing and then apparently at the exact same time he'll be over here fighting crime with like Robin. They'll they'll both be fighting crime at the exact same discrete moment in time, but they're in two different storylines. Even though those storylines will like cross a different issue and they'll be referencing things from two things that happened at the same time in different titles. Uh, and you just kind of have to roll with that and assume that uh, multiple Batmans can exist in the space-time continuum at the same time. And so you had these titles where all these different characters were doing stuff together, but it was mostly designed so that you would go back and read, like, Ant-Man, if you hadn't read Ant-Man before, um, or go back and read Captain America. And so a lot of different stuff, a lot of different storylines happened all the way through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And uh, at that point, like, several other related titles got more popular. So Iron Man got more popular after he was rebooted in the 80s. Captain America stayed pretty consistently popular through that whole time because he's Captain Freakin' America. The Fantastic Four, like, became a, a more uh, visible um, and notable comics title. And then in the in the early part of the last decade, which makes me feel astonishingly old, you started to refocus the Avengers into a new set of event of Avengers. Basically the thing to to know going into the film is that initially these were all people who had no real desire to work with each other at all. They were brought together by the King of Badass, also known as Nick Fury, for a perp- for a single goal, which was to um, collectively fight bad guys on a scale that they couldn't do individually. And it only succeeded in part because there's this shady, we'll go with shady, this <laughs> shady, <laughs> shady government entity called S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, behind everything making this happen and, you know, blackmailing Iron Man into joining the group and... Uh, that last scene in the Captain America movie where he, like, almost punches his nurse and, like, freaks out and goes into the middle of Times Square. That's how Captain America gets reincorporated into, or gets incorporated into uh, S.H.I.E.L.D., which I do know what that stands for. But I would okay. no one no one really needs to know. Just Colson. Colson's the only one who needs to know what it stands for. Only Colson ever. Basically they're they're all pulled together and don't really like or or know anything about each other because at that point, like in Marvel Canon, they had all been fighting bad guys, call that broadly, in different parts of like the the country and the world and in Steve's case time. And so to bring them all together was revolutionary for for them as individuals and then you know they're they're like that scrappy team that you put together and they have to work out their differences to figure out how they can work out well together so (laughs) you could just expect a lot of like 
you know, weird looks as they're all, like, trying to take the measure of each other and don't particularly like each other or want to spend time with each other, but really, really like punching people. So that's probably the the most backstory you would need going into the Avengers still. I'm super, just listening to that makes me super excited about that movie. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm sitting here with, like, a big, stupid, like, six-year-old going to Disney World grin on my face. Like, I'm so excited about that movie. You're so easy. I'm, I'm so easy. There's going to be, like, giant robots and and people hitting each other. Like, that's about all I need. Oh, my God. Really you know what I just realized? Pardon? Sorry, I just realized that it's too bad that you don't like comics, Prue, because in actual X-Men in the comics, it's something you love and something you hate. Giant robots called yeah. Sentinels. <laughs> oh, fuck that noise. Why would they, why would they, this, I feel like Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I most love sprung from the thing I hate most. <laughs> oh, man. I'm really looking forward to seeing Daddy Kirk's constipated face all the time. <laughs> Just constantly. I just want yeah. to see him, like, in that movie, because he just looks like he's constantly in a Revlon commercial. <laughs> yeah, I think his whole life is basically a Revlon commercial. Thor is, like, amazing. Basically, Thor is the best bro of your life, you know? He doesn't care. He just wants to, like, have a good time. Yeah. Whether that be involving strippers or killing some shit or, like, fighting whatever <laughs> monsters his little brother throws on Earth. Like, he gets it. The kid's going through a rough patch. Thor is the greatest. He's the best. I love that guy so much. I'm going to end up watching that movie again tonight. Oh, God. Thor is, like, basically the id of a thousand fanboys. I think that's why he succeeded so hard. Yeah. Hit of a thousand fangirls as well, so. That's very true. So I could also talk a little bit about DC and why DC is epic, or we could just stay in the beautiful world that is Avengers because it is a beautiful world. And they're doing Hawkeye in this film, and I, like, legit screamed when I saw that. <laughs> Wait, so I'm confused. Are they doing a separate Hawkeye movie, or are they just, or is he just showing up in this movie? So Jeremy Remmer is actually contracted for a couple films. Um, they, they, so Marvel's film house does, or film studio does this thing where they like to backdoor in characters, characters so that, um, yeah, they, they can try and, and do stuff with them later. Huh? Don't worry about it. She just felt compelled to make a backdoor joke. <laughs> He's Sorry, I, that's a, the minefield, uh, of, of words. Right. So they, in the Thor film. They introduced Hawkeye, and they didn't, well, they didn't introduce him. They were just like, here's this guy that you might know if you like comics, and if you don't, you'll just think that Jeremy Remmer is pretty, which I do. And so they introduced him. He's the guy uh, that has the archer, uh, the bow, Mm -hmm. and is trying to, like, shoot the shit out of Thor when Thor is being all, like, emo. And so in the theater, like, I had seen the, the photo before I went in to see the film. And, but in the theater, I was, like, sitting literally on the edge of my seat. I wanted to be so much closer to Hawkeye and Jeremy Bremer in that scene. And so, they, they, like, that was all set up to put him into the Avengers film. And if the Avengers film does well, I think they're going to do a spinoff for Hawkeye, which would be amazing. I like the idea if the Avengers movie does well. I feel like, how can this movie not do well? <laughs> it's pretty unlikely at this point because they've, they've basically built in, I mean, this is the genius, right, of Marvel's film house, especially, so I, like, I have a whole spiel about why the, the films, like, are so different and why the production cycles are so, so different between DC 
who has all these amazing characters and storyline and fuck it up constantly. And Marvel, who has, like, pretty great stories, but has figured out how to, like, do it independently. Because, so both uh, the comic books, like, as films, like, as big films, maybe, like, you could kind of say started in the late 90s with, like, the Batman films, where Batman changed in every film and went from Michael Keaton to Val Kilmer and then had to come back from, from all of that. And it wasn't until X-Men in 2000 uh, came out that comic books kind of got its focus back as a separate genre in film. And on the success of the first three X-Men and Spider-Man, Marvel decided to um, buy its contracts out of the production studio it was associated with and create its own sub-studio, which gave it a shit ton of creative control over how they wanted to handle the stories which is why you got, like, the first Iron Man. That was a great comic book movie. Like, they just knew everything that they wanted to do with that. And they used it as a launch. Like, they had this, I, I imagine, this kind of, like, evil lair plan thing associated <laughs> with Marvel. And they were like, you know what would be awesome? If we could do, like, eight or ten movies, and they were all in the same canon so that people didn't get confused going to the movie theater. And everyone else was like, that sounds like a great idea. And DC was like, we're going to make this really obscure version of Batman that no one's really going to recognize, but people are going to think is awesome. And that's the main difference between the two, is that every DC character is discreet. You go, you went, if you saw Green Lantern, first of all, I apologize on behalf <laughs> of Green Lantern everywhere because it's awesome and that was not clear from that portrayal. The only good thing about Green Lantern is that dude that played Hal was a dick. And that was accurate. So, but they're all discreet. Like, they're, each one is its own story. They don't connect with each other at all. Whereas in Marvel, all the stories from the beginning in the films are connected. They're all the same canon, which is so unusual for comic book movies. Personally, I think I'm, like, the only person in fandom who hates Ryan Reynolds. Like, I just, I can't stand him. I wish he was in no movies. So, I didn't see <laughs> Green Lantern because I was like, oh, Ryan Reynolds, no, God. He was a douche in it. And, but that was actually, like, good characterization because Hal Jordan is basically a douche. Yeah. But, you know, I basically will just not see any movie that Ryan Reynolds is in. That's, like, my general rule of thumb. Is Ryan Reynolds there? Don't go. That's a lie, first of all. That's a lie. Which, which Sandra Bullock movie did you see that has Ryan Reynolds in it? Wait. Wait. The only reason I watched that is because I liked the Merlin AU of it, and the Merlin AU was significantly better. <laughs> Debatable, but whatever. It was so much better. That movie was shit. That movie was garbage, but it had potential, dude. It had potential. How can you not like Ryan Reynolds? He's one of your countrymen. Aren't you obligated as a Canadian to love him? Oh, no. Canadian. Forgot that. If I were obligated to love everyone Canadian, I would have to like Celine Dion and Nickelback. Like, <laughs> well, Celine Dion and Nickelback are the reason Canada doesn't have Spotify. That is your punishment for inflicting them on the musical world. Oh. oh and Avril Lavigne. You know what, actually, Canadians I kind of like Spotify? Avril Lavigne. Wait, Canadians <laughs> don't have Spotify? No. There's, um, in order to put these musical things in different countries. You have to have all of the licensing again, but for Canada. And our downloading rules, like, legally are quite different than America. Man, that sucks. Basically, we have a tax on blank CDs that goes to the music and movie <laughs> industry. Oh my god, really? Yeah, uh, and it's, like, small. It's, like, one cent or something on each CD, but that basically is, like, they're not saying it's okay to download, but they're, like, illegal downloads, that's how we're covering that cost. Wow. 
Meanwhile, Spotify is awesome. Everyone should get on that shit. Unless you're Canadian, in which case you should watch some Ryan Reynolds movies. No, if you're Canadian, you can listen to Last FM. (laughs) All right, we have to get back on track. You were were degrading DC, by the way. Continue. No, I love DC. Listen, okay, here's the thing. People are like, no, DC, it's so blah, blah, blah. Don't, don't worry about it. If you like the idea of Batman, you should probably read the No Man's Land arc of the Batman mm. comics, which is amazing. Like, it's what got me back into comics after, like, ten years. So the basic idea is that shit happens to Gotham City. So much shit in such a short period of time that it is, like, beyond New Orleans, right? Like, it's it's beyond that. And the government is like, listen, you have two weeks to get the fuck out of Gotham City, and after that, we're cornering it off with the military, and it is no longer a part of the United States. And they do. And a bunch of people stay in Gotham City. They're like, fuck you, we can fix this. However, that includes all of the bad guys, like the Joker and the Penguin and some of the Gotham City Police Department. And uh, because there's no law anymore, because there's no United States government, people just become gangs. And so, like, the Joker gang tags their territory with, like, cans of spray paint, and they'll be like, Joker. And you know that that's Joker territory. And so does the Penguin, and so does everyone else. So does the Gotham Police Department. And Batman is not there because Bruce Wayne has gone to Washington to, like, petition the government He's like, I will pay for this shit. Just like, please help me fix Gotham City. So there's no Batman. Everything has gone to hell. And then, <laughs> Helena. God, what, what's her actual, like, superhero name again? Huntress. Yes. So Huntress, like, sews herself up a Batman costume and pretends yeah. to be Batman and will, like, attack people in the middle of the night. And they'll be like, holy shit, Batman's here. And Bruce Wayne is like, what the shit is going on? And this is the first time in like con- in relatively contemporary comic book canon that someone pretended to be Batman and like lived. Yeah. It was, it was a huge deal at the time. He was pissed, but she lived. And exactly. one of my favorite, it's a single issue in the arc. And the arc is huge, but it's amazing. Like it's a contained story that is brilliant. One of my favorite parts is... There's an entire issue in which Superman is like, okay, I've got some time. I can go save Gotham City. And he flies in and he's trying to save people and like, you know, help them get food and like clean water. And the people of Gotham City are like, Superman, seriously, get the fuck out. You (laughs) cannot fix this in a day. Essentially, if you ever want to read any DC but you weren't sure, it's a really good, like, contained story. It's across, like, eight or nine volumes to actually get, like, a good length out of it. And everyone tells Superman to go the fuck home because you can't fix a national disaster in a day. (laughs) I I love the idea of Superman being like, well, I've got some time. Yeah, he was like, finally, I can do this. And they were like, no, no, just go. Superman's such a jerk, though. And, like, this is this is the terrible thing, because I grew up watching The New Adventures of Superman and Batman or Batman and Superman. So good. It was so good. I still love those yeah. cartoons so much. And he was so great. Like, Clark Kent in those cartoons was awesome. And Lois was awesome. Like, everybody was awesome. And Batman was amazing. And then, like, I grew up and I started, well, Smallville happened, which was terrible. <laughs> yeah, why would you watch that? Hi, I'm dumb. We've, we've reviewed this before. And then, and then, you know, all the Superman movies happened and they were terrible. So, oh. okay, so here's the thing. I've told you this before, but I haven't told, like, the world. So, in- I haven't told the Slash reporters this. Yeah, I haven't told the Slash reporters this. 
Uh, in fourth year university, I was uh, like majoring in rhetoric. And you could write about anything you wanted for your final paper in rhetoric class. It would be like 70% of your mark or something. I was like, excuse me, professor, can I write about Batman? And she was like, of course. So I spent like all of fourth year university writing about Batman. And part of what I got, like, I got to make a big presentation and it was great. And I like inducted people into the Batman family. But the important thing to know about Batman and Superman is that if you look at the things that Superman can do, Superman is what you want to be when you're a kid. Yes. He can reach anything. He can move anything. He's like fast. He can see through walls. Like he can get anywhere. He can do anything. When you're a kid, you like can't reach the cookies on the top shelf. And you like have to go to bed at whatever time. Like, everything is either you can't do it or someone is making you do something. Superman can do anything and nobody tells him what to do. He's a child superhero. Right. Whereas Batman is a superhero for adults. He doesn't have superpowers. He just worked really hard and, you know, has his millions of dollars. <laughs> but That's like the best point about Batman, too, is that he's, he's a vigilante. He's not, he wasn't like, you know, dipped in a vat of acid and like came out better for it. He made of himself with his gods and gods of money what he wanted to be. Exactly. Yeah, that's like, that's like, oh, there's like this creepy sort of undercurrent where it's like you can purchase justice and you can purchase vigilantism and that's okay if you're Bruce Wayne or you're Tony Stark. And like, while comic book where like action movie me loves that, like, Real me doesn't like that at all. My friend Paul is like, listen, I love Batman. Batman's amazing. But don't you think that he could do way more good as Bruce Wayne if instead of fighting crime as a vigilante, he just spent all of his time working on those children's charities and like anti-crime agencies that he runs? Yes! Like he could do, he could clean up Gotham City in a matter of years. But instead he's like, I need to use my fists. It's true. But that's you know, what I think he's a boy. Yeah, but that's what I love about that Batman. He's not completely going after justice. He's what in at least in his viewpoint most of the time, he thinks he's supporting like he's filling holes in the existing system. So if he goes after some mugger for like taking someone's purse, he doesn't like, you know, try them in the court of pointy ears. He just like ties them up and leaves a little note saying, Here, help you out. Yeah. What I yeah, like about Batman like, is that he's kind of believable as a person. He's like an asshole and he's crazy, but oh, you but get why he's doing stuff. Oh, he's so like, legit crazy. Don't you guys have like a little piece of you that's like, oh man, this is going to ruin the court procedure. Like the chain of evidence has been broken. Like you can't exactly call Batman to the stand to give. Yeah, like, Are you kidding? Batman goes on the stand. Procedure. Batman goes on the stand all the time. No fucking way. Accurate. How do you even take? How do you even take deposition of Batman? It's a different universe, dude. It's totally different. Oh, you know what? In the No Man's Land arc of Batman... First name of Bat. Surname of <laughs> There is an amazing section of the story in which Two-Face, who we all know is Harvey Dent, who was uh, the DA... And his lover, very briefly. And his lover. Don't worry not, about it. Not, not for real, like, in my, in my head. Oh. They yeah. had a lot of sexual tension. You almost made me care about Batman. <laughs> no, but this is... I'll put a little more factoids in there for you, and that will make you question just enough to go and experience. It's, oh, it's a very... Just... You know, Batman cares a lot about Harvey Dent. <laughs> he does. But here's the thing. Okay, so we all know that Two-Face is crazy, and he has this split personality, Two-Face and Harvey Dent. And in the No Man's Land arc, 
Harvey Dent slash Two-Face kidnaps a bunch of people, including a police officer, and puts Batman on trial. And Two-Face is like the judge and the prosecution, but um, Batman actually argues his way out of it using the law. And Harvey Dent is like, damn it, that is an amazing legal argument. You win. (laughs) That happens. And then Two-Face falls in love with a lady police officer, and she's like, fuck you, I'm a lesbian. I love how, like, you come so close to making the sound good, and then you, like, ruin it at the last minute with some appended, like, factoid that makes me, like, god damn it. You know what, though? You would actually really like like There's two really awesome sort of police-related superhero things. So if you like procedurals, there's a couple of great gateway drugs for you, too. And one is um, GCPD, which is the Gotham Central Police Department, which is amazing. It's basically the entire perspective on, on Gotham. Um, and dealing with these, like, crazy superheroes and supervillains and, like, even tiny superheroes and, and or not super, but, like, mediocre villains and mediocre uh, heroes all the time and how shitty that is for the Gotham, Gotham Police Department and how hard it is. So GCPD, really, really great way to, like, put your toe into um, the DC universe. And then there's also Powers, which uh, is done, I think they're making it into a film now, and it's written by a dude named Brian Michael Bendis, who is just, uh, like, if I, if I fangirled anyone, I would fangirl Brian Michael Bendis. He is an incredible writer. Huh? If you fangirled anyone? If I fangirled publicly. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) The great thing about... fangirl in the privacy of, of, of company. Right. The great thing I think about DC is that um, it took them a while, but they got to the point where they were like, oh, you know, maybe you want these other perspectives and these other groups. Like, maybe you don't just want a bunch of dudes in tights. Maybe you want something else. And although this is ladies in tights, I am stupidly hooked on Birds of Prey, the comic book, not the TV series. Because the TV series is garbage. But essentially, in um, The Killing Joke... Joker shoots Barbara Gordon, Batgirl, in the spine, paralyzing her from the waist down for the rest of her life. What is it with people in comics getting shot in the fucking spine? Well, this was what's-his-face fucking Frank Miller, who, like, everything had to be horrifying. Frank Miller. I... Fuck you, Frank Miller. Like, I understand that he revolutionized comics, but I still hate him. Well, he did it by, like, salting and burning the ground. Yeah. that's how he revolutionized. And I did not... I did not enjoy it. Um, but the point is, like, that was horrible, and you're like, how the fuck are we gonna come back from this? Amazingly, Barbara Gordon is incredibly intelligent, her, and has, like, years of experience being Batgirl. So what she does is, she goes to Bruce Wayne, and she's like, listen, I'm gonna still do this, but I'm gonna do it, like, with science and learning, so I want you to give me a couple million dollars and buy me this clock tower. And he's like, okay, buys her a clock tower, and she sets up the greatest information network in the world. Like, she is in every database. She knows exactly what's going on everywhere, and she basically becomes central communications and organization for all DC superheroes, and then forms her own group of superheroes, which is just, like, a bunch of awesome lady superheroes who come when she calls, and she sends them out on, like, missions that are amazing. Okay, why hasn't DC made a movie about this? Because I would watch the shit out of that. They tried to make a show, and the show was so abjectly terrible that it, like, sealed the door on it, yeah. on trying to develop it further. You probably remember it because Joe Flanagan was in it for an episode. No, so you, the worst Joe Flanagan that I ever watched was Family Album, and even that was in YouTube excerpts, so I, I never <laughs> actually watched. Oh, Family Album. Shit, that was so extra bad. Birds of Prey was pretty ultra-terrible. Like, they took all the charm out of it, and then... 
created, they like changed a character and made her like a 14 year old girl who was the main character. And like that girl was annoying and shit got well, real. Well, and also, um, the, one of the neat things about Birds of Prey is that it got, ended up, it ended up getting used by someone's fan vid for a constructed reality vid about Jason Todd. Um, that was just like the most epic and amazing proof of concept ever. All right. The other thing I love about Birds of Prey, just as an add-on, super femme slashy. Like, if you just want oh, ladies yeah. being up in each other's action, Birds of Prey. It's oh, all well, ladies. I'm saying it, too, that, um, that Barbara's all like, Dinah, what are you doing? Why are you marrying this dude? Yeah. I don't understand. Don't you want to just come and, like, stay with me all the time? Black Canary and Batgirl are basically in love, and it's kind of tragic and beautiful, and sometimes it's really awesome. Why does it have to be tragic? I'm it's like all, anti-tragedy. It's only temporarily tragic, and then Batgirl, like, fixes everything, and Dinah's like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> like, it's great. Also, you have the female equivalent, I would say, of Captain America. In Batgirl? No. Um, there is a girl who is in The Birds of Prey, who was, like, a World War II fighter pilot. Oh, Yeah. Wait, how? Uh, it doesn't matter. Just just go with it. But the point is that, like, basically, she was there, and now she is in our time, like, unaged. And she, like, still flies planes for Batgirl and is awesome and, like, drinks really hard and goes out to bars and is like, ah, oh, my people who died in World War II and the other, like, the old men in the veterans bar will be like, who the fuck are you? And then she beats the shit out of them. I want to be her best friend. You would love her. She's, like, inside a really sweet person who just, like, misses her buddies from the war and then, like, spends all of her time getting tanked and beating the shit out of people. Oh, my God. I definitely love her. <laughs> yeah, she's Pretty probably amazing. my favorite. That's really upsetting. Um, I can't believe that this is never going to happen as, like, a film franchise. We can't say it's never going to happen. Lady Blackhawk. Pardon? Yeah, her Lady Blackhawk. Lady Blackhawk. She's amazing. If DC ever gets their act together, there's hope that they could make that movie and it would be, like, the greatest thing ever. Keyword, if DC ever gets gets its act together. I know. Oh, it's so true. It's so bad. (laughs) Sorry. Well, there's clearly so much room to make, like, piles and piles of money off of this that if they would just let DC people, like, comic book people write the movie. Yeah, instead of, like, a studio exec going, you know what we need? Something that blows shit up that we could put in 3D for the summer. We need more sex appeal. Can her outfit be more scanty? That's how you're going to get butts in the seats. (laughs) I know. No, just give me the birds of prey. I actually, I would rather they not make birds of prey because I think that they would do a really terrible job of it. Like, in in a way that would do disservice to them as female icons of DC. Yeah, but you know, I have dreams. And your dream is probably perfect. <laughs> MK, one day when we're both like studio executives, which will never happen. I don't want to be a studio oh, exec. Yeah. Those people are assholes. No, agreed. Um, okay, one day when we make Lepagus be a studio executive. <laughs> yes. Let's let's carry on with something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said you wanted to talk about indie comics. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so indie comics. Love indie comics. The thing, so it's very easy to think of comic books, especially if you're not over familiar with them, and think that it's all like superheroes and um, uh, supervillains all the time. But comic books, especially in the last, we call it like 20 years, have become a really fascinating um, new art medium uh, to to do all kinds of amazing stuff. Um, 
one, actually one example that MQS brought up just a second ago was uh, Persepolis. Uh, Marjan Satrapi, um, who I think I may be pronouncing that slightly wrong, I'm sorry, world. Um, but she, uh, she and her family um, are from Iran during the, um, the revolution. regime change. Yeah, during the revolution and the regime change in Iran. And she was sent as a, a young teenager to go live in France at a boarding school and experienced um, what it was like to be outside of a very closed country and then return to it. Um, Iran is, is a nation that kind of got stuck in time um, around the time of the revolution and is a, a fascinating, if slightly desperate, place. And she ended up writing this epic two-volume um, comic book series about what just what her life was like. It's, and it was revolutionary. Or go ahead, talk. It's amazing. Like, I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's the uh, Persepolis Volume 1 is basically her growing up as a very young child inside Iran with all of the censorship and all of the rules. And it's autobiographical. And the great thing about it is she doesn't, like try to make herself look better when she writes it. Like, all the shit that you do as a kid that you think is awesome is in there, except that it's in the middle of a bloody revolution. Like, if she thinks that she's the greatest shit at this moment in time, that's what's going in the comic. And there's, like, a, a whole chapter in which she's just trying to smuggle, like, Michael Jackson mu music and buttons to school, and she gets caught by, like, angry religious people. Like, it's amazing. It's, I learned a lot. And I laughed and I cried. Like, if you want an amazing story, she does it. And it's fantastic. And they actually made that into a film as well, which is quite good. I haven't um, seen that yet. They, Yeah, it, they basically didn't go very far from, from the comic book style itself. Um, so it's, it's lovely. It's very muted. But, you know, if you're... My sister is one of these people who can't like read images and words on the same page, I don't understand it. It drives me crazy because I've been reading comics for over a decade and I'm like, I just read this awesome thing. And she's like, does it have pictures? I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to read. So if you, but if you like movies, like maybe it'll be a little easier, but it's a wonderful story. It's also called uh, Persepolis and you should check it out. I would also say if you're going to read, you know what, for your sister, she actually might like this. There is... I'm going to call it a graphic novel, even though there's no writing. Wait, uh, hold on. Quick question. Is there, are, do people draw a distinction between comic books and graphic novels? Like, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so sometimes graphic novels uh, are thought of as, as a whole story that's issued as one volume, which just makes it separate from comics in the sense that comics tend to be serialized that are collected into a volume later, as opposed to, arguably, a graphic novel, which is issued as a complete book um, by itself. Um, the graphic novel is also just referred to as the completed volume of a set of issues. But I would also say, think of it like this. Nobody would say that Garfield is a graphic novel. They would call it a comic book. <laughs> right. Or they would call it a comic book. Yeah. If you really want to know a lot about graphic novels, uh, comics, and, like, just how that works, and if you've ever enjoyed Marshall McLuhan for anything, 
I would highly recommend reading Understanding Comics and the other two or three books that um, Scott McCloud wrote. He's basically the Marshall McLuhan of comic books. And it's very entertaining and actually very educational at the same time. Okay, I'm going to betray my ignorance here. Who the fuck is Marshall McLuhan? Marshall McLuhan is uh, the f- most famous media theorist in history. He's basically... The media is the message. Yeah, he's the guy who said the medium is the message. And he was like, you know, one of the interesting things that he said that I just thought was amazing was... Let's say that you're in your car and you're driving and somebody hits you. You don't say, somebody's car hit my car. You say, somebody's car hit me or that person hit me. Because when you're driving, you are an extension of your car and your car is an extension of you. You become the car. Right. And he was like, he would just talk about like, isn't it interesting that when you're driving, you're not driving a car. You are driving. Why is that interesting? I think you have to read the whole thing, but basically he would just, he would analyze different things and explain to you why things would happen and why people say things in a particular way. And then he basically predicted, like, the internet. Nice. uh, Like, 30 years before it happened. Guy was a genius. He was an asshole, but he was a genius. (laughs) So many geniuses are. Yeah. But, okay, so, let's say that you can't read words and pictures at the same time. Like, you can only read one. I would recommend that you pick up a copy of The Arrival by Sean Tan. The Arrival is a beautiful, beautiful book that is just illustrations, but it's an entire story. And it takes place in kind of a fantasy world with some people who have immigrated to a new city and what happens to them there. And it's like I understood exactly what happened when I read it, even though there were no words. It's just beautiful, beautiful art. Every page is fascinating. And it's a complete story. Awesome. Similarly, um, there's an amazing... uh, so a lot of, um, I'm talking about indie comics, a lot of indie comics are reactionary to sort of superhero culture because it's so dominant in most of, of comics as like a world and as a fandom. So some of the, the best indie comics out there are deconstructing what being a superhero means. So I mentioned Powers before uh, by Brian Michael Bendis. And there's three volumes, so volume three is kind of... Um, petered out as they're figuring out what to do with, uh, with the title. But it's all about um, what it would be, basically what it would be like to police a world, like a more real version of the world that has um, superheroes in it and the damage and destruction they cause and why you would choose to like hide your any powers that you might get. And it's this incredibly well done, very, very smart and cheeky um, version of of the superhero kind of mythos because it started in Image Comics, which is an offshoot, uh, super independent, like you can basically do whatever you want there. And it got so popular so fast that it got picked up by Marvel and promptly went, like, jump the shark. But <laughs> <laughs> because that's what happens when they get bought by big ones. But it's an amazing uh, discourse onto um, what you know. If, if there was a care, if there was actually a Superman, that shit would be crazy. Like, <laughs> not you, not just suspend your disbelief, crazy, but like this, this dude just caused you know five hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. Who's gonna pay it? Like they try to answer the question of who's gonna pay it. It's I, for people who. Um, think superheroes are kind of silly, this is probably a comic for you. And for people who like irony, uh, this is also the comic for you. Awesome. Yeah, because that's a question that I frequently have. Like, it was terrible, but I was reading some rundown of the Civil War arc. Oh, God. uh, 
Yeah, which they would not be making a movie about that because I don't think I can handle all the tears. Um, in the Avengers universe, and I was like sitting there thinking, like, I don't know, I think Tony's point of view is kind of reasonable, which I'm recognizing as like the wrong way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, always. Well, yeah. But yeah, I love him so much. Like, I know. He's like my drunk friend. Terrible things happen in comics, and sometimes you just have to go with it. You frequently just have to go with it. If we're going to talk um, about terrible things, sorry, um, I just wanted to talk about Fables for a couple minutes. Oh, sure, totally. Let's totally talk about Fables. So Fables is an incredibly popular series that has gotten very strong positive and negative reactions uh, in the comics world. Um, and the basic premise of Fables is that all of the fairy tales that we tell, or all of the stories that we tell that are fictional, um, actually have happened in other worlds, like parallel worlds to ours. And all of these worlds are linked together. So like Snow White is a real person, and Cinderella is a real person, and the Big Bad Wolf is a real person. And in their worlds, everyone is living their like, whatever, you know, pretty good fairy tale life, good things happen, bad things happen, when someone starts invading all of the fairy tale worlds, um, called the adversary. And the adversary just suddenly has a massive, unkillable army, and he will sweep in, take over, um, and just like everything sucks. He's a massive dictator. He's horrible. Everyone hates him. And so different fables, as they call themselves, start fleeing. And the only place that they can find that's safe is the mundane world, or our world. And they basically set up shop along one street in New York and um, a farm outside of New York. And they kind of have it set up so that if mundanes walk in, they're like, oh, no, that doesn't look right. And they just kind of leave. They just wander away. And, you know, Snow White should basically be the mayor. The Big Bad Wolf is the sheriff. They're all just people living in New York doing their thing um, and thinking like, we'll never be able to take out the adversary. I don't know what we're going to do. Like if he comes here, um, they're just freaking out and eventually they go to war with him. But more interestingly, it's just like a, a really interesting story about what happens to these people um, and their lives in, in mundane well, New York. And two, two other awesome things about it as well is that they invert the character tropes that you're familiar with um, from, from like the from the fairy tales, right? So the big bad wolf goes on to be one of the main uh, linchpins of authority within Fable Town, right? So completely revamping his position in, uh, in the fairy tale stories. And it's one of the things that it's amazing about is the super empowerment of its female characters. So like Cinderella goes on to be this epic spy and Snow White becomes the mayor of Fable Town and is just like, badass at it and everybody hates prince charming prince (laughs) charming has slept with all the ladies and they are pissed because you know prince charming appears in all sorts of different fairy tales it's the same prince charming well he's like a nameless male facsimile of all of our dreams that won't come true so that makes sense right but in fables he's like yeah i did snow white and then i did cinderella and then i did and you're like fuck you and everybody is like that guy's an asshole and he's a complete tool about it too that's the best part is like they don't even try to make him likable they just make him a big tool yeah and Beauty and the Beast, oh my god, they're married, but whenever Beauty gets pissed at Beast, he turns back into a beast, and he's like, please don't be mad at me, I just want to be a dude again. <laughs> it's great. There's like over a hundred issues now, um, which should be a little intimidating to to take on, but they're also really well collected into graphic novels and trades, and they've been around for so long that they are probably easy to pick up um, or get off of Amazon. Also, the cover um, art is beautiful. So James Jean is the illustrator of all of the cover art in Fables, uh, okay. and he also illustrated one chapter 
of 1001 Nights of Snowfall, which is kind of like a side story to fables. James Jean is so good at illustration and his art is so beautiful uh, that major designers have hired him to just like draw shit on shoes and bags and then they've produced the bags and they'll be like, you know, it's $5,000 to buy this bag. That's how beautiful his artwork is. Nice. They, do, they have a collection of just the covers, I think, as well, where they collected them in the back of one of the trades. Because they, so with the graphic novel, they'll only put one cover on the, the front, but they don't want to, like, not let you see all the other amazing covers that they've done, so they'll tuck them at the back so that you can gaze on their beauty and despair. He also has a series of art books that you can buy that are called Process Recess, and some of his art is really dark and creepy, but, like, everything is beautiful. Awesome. Oh, we should talk about Sandman, because we can't talk about, like, we can't talk about comics without talking about Sandman. All right, go ahead. Okay, are you guys familiar with Sandman at all? Um, uh, a little bit. I'm familiar insofar as everyone has a hard-on for Neil Gaiman, and I hate everything he's ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Even his most recent Simpsons episode? Because that was actually pretty funny. Well, considering when I hear the name Neil Gaiman at this point, I just roll my eyes. I didn't watch it. I have not but, read a lot of Neil Gaiman. I loved his Doctor Who episode, um, and I loved Stardust, but I bought the comic and I just wasn't that interested. Just kind of makes me a terrible person. All right, I'm going to use this as like my pitch to convince you to reconsider your opinion. Because, so, Neil Gaiman, um, his, his star has kind of risen in maybe the last 10 years because he started writing novels, but where he began as a writer was um, with Hellblazer, which is a, a comic. If you guys saw the film Constantine with Keanu Reeves, first of all, I'm sorry, and second of all, it's based on uh, this series called Hellblazer, which is all about a guy who um, does magic and is very, like, very British, but not in, in the Sid Vicious kind of way, not in the Colin Firth kind of way, and uh, goes around smoking all the time and generally being an asshole and only partially likable. And Neil started writing uh, for that title, and he started writing for other titles in Vertigo. And Vertigo is a comic book imprint of DC. I love Vertigo. But they have their own. I'm sorry? I love Vertigo. They do a lot of good stuff. They do a lot of amazing stuff. And they have a lot more latitude to get into um, darker themes. And they, they're definitely one of the most adult comic uh, imprints. They usually do titles that are directed towards adult audiences. And which I like being an adult. Um, so he started writing back in like the 80s for this series and did such a, a good job in the view of the, the editors that they gave him a shot to write his own title. And he, so the Sandman was a, a really old school um, superhero, we'll call it very roughly a superhero who um, was like out of World War II and used to wear a gas mask and had the ability to, um, like, I think he had the ability to go into people's dreams. And that was like his, his power. And so he would go and fight creatures, um, and stuff. And so when you, a lot of times when new comics come out, um, there are references or reboots of, um, older things, uh, just because there's so much fertile ground to work with in comic books. They've been, we've had comics for like over like 90 years and someone created some random character that they wanted to pick up and try again. And so Neil Gaiman uh, wanted to try and reboot this Sandman character um, who was a detective uh, who went and detected things, but he wanted to completely fundamentally change the premise. And so he conceived of this like Greek 
panoply of um, godlike characters that are all based on, um, well, the letter D because of reductionism, and two um, sort of core traits. There's dream, desire, uh, uh, destruction, um, death, etc. There's like a couple more as well. And he basically writes about the long-term, this, this goes over seven volumes of comic books, of amazing, amazing comic books. Of He investigates myth, he investigates um, story, he investigates empowerment, he investigates horror tropes, he investigates um, all these different things uh, and goes from like Shakespeare all the way back to, you know, Greek stories. Um, and the whole body of dreaming and, and story in it. And these, all these comic books uh, were written and designed in the 80s when they really, really like to use neon inks. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> it all, <laughs> all looks like um, uh, uh, record covers, like really terrible 80s album covers all the time. And they got remastered in the last five or six years to uh, modern printing, which is slightly less on the... Let's go with hot pink. We, what this really needs is more hot pink. Um, so they were designed into the ultimate Sandman volume, which um, is beautifully remastered uh, and brought into sort of modern sensibilities. And the thing that's amazing about these, aside from the fact that if any person that you talk to who um, has ever read comics will be familiar, at least in part, with these books, there's a, an epic starting point for re rethinking everything that you know about story and about what's possible. And there, in many ways, I think that they're like the gateway drug for people who don't really care about superheroes and don't really care about, you know, fighting crime, but really love a good story. And that's what this is. It's a really, really good story. Okay. Okay, so while we have Temple Marker on the show, uh, we were thinking she should come on and do a fandom safari. And she's going to do, I think it is, Generation Kill. And I've only read, I think, one or two Generation Kill stories, and both of them were AUs because I know nothing about it. So, But I know that it's pretty gay, which I think is what everyone knows about Generation Kill. It's, like, pretty gay, and it's probably involving war. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God, That's all I know. So I think you should indoctrinate us okay to answer your general statement yes it is gay yes it involves war excellent okay all right um i'm gonna let you start going on the count of three are you prepared i am so prepared all righty one two three Generation Kill is, intentionally or not, a love song to the United States Marine Corps. It's a harrowing, nuanced picture of the day-to-day challenges of being part of the U.S. military, compounded by the invasion of Iraq by U.S. forces in the spring of 2003. For people with any interest in or background with the military, it's one of the most faithful depictions of military life in-country, and specifically America's recent wars in Southwest Asia. It's also really gay. How can it not be with a speaking cast comprised entirely of men and Alexander Skarsgård? Arguably, the primary OTP is between Nate, a young Marine lieutenant in charge of leading one of the most badass groups of, re- of recon Marines ever there were, into the depths of Saddam Hussein's territory at the beginning of the invasion, who's trying to hold his band of brothers together with gun lube and moto bullshit, despite incompetent assholes at every turn. His boyfriend is Brad, who has the unique distinction of being excessively, deliciously competent. He's a smartass with a smoking body and a hard-on for shared first lieutenant. The seven episodes of Generation Kill could be seen as their awkward, epic, DADT oppressing, rank-busting mating dance, and I encourage you to think of it that way. But there's so much more going on. 
It's funny as hell and breathtakingly heartbreaking. It's one overarching perspective on an incredibly complex series of events, and it doesn't shy away from investigating the flaws and failings of men, their military, and the war they're not certain they should be fighting. But most of all, it's real in a way we infrequently see in television. Come for the gorgeous Melody men. Stick around for the cinematic brilliance. We're a fandom that never stops researching, and we come prepped with a book list. I promise you, it's worth it. And time. That is one minute, 37 Point two seconds. Very good oh, job. Yeah. I don't know if that's daily or awesome. That's pretty good, it's dude. Pretty good. You managed to compress like a very, very complicated fandom into a pretty short period of time. <laughs> it was hard. I left so much out. It's so amazing. <laughs> I mean, I actually have assiduously avoided the source material just because I can't handle war stories, especially realistic ones. Ditto. Uh, but... I have actually read, like, every Generation Kill fan fiction ever wrote because that fandom seems to be anointed with some, like, magical touch where, like, 98% of your fan work is pretty awesome. That's so true. It's actually incredible to look back and, and over the last three or four years, this fandom has been around and the quality still hasn't dipped. Like, it's amazing. It's like a small, constantly... Like, you guys are keep, keep churning it out. Like, it's a small, reliable fandom. And if you... So for people who want to, like, dip into it and don't really know where to start, I'm going to put up a, a post on my journal that gives you kind of a quick introduction of where to start. But also, I run our um, the Generation Kills annual holiday fan work challenge every year. It's called Yakius, if which means you ain't Generation Kill, you ain't shit. Um, so it's uh, if you go to my journal, you'll be able to find the link to it, and you can check that out. There's a, about 100 amazing stories in that archive just from – Two years of running the challenge. Awesome. Awesome. Alrighty, uh, I think that we've spanned the globe and many different universes in terms of comics. Let's let's do our recs for the week. Um, T, do you want to get us started? Yeah, totally. Okay, so my first story is going to be a Generation Kill story. It's a great, this is going to be a great um, gateway fic into the fandom. It just came out uh, this past week, and it's by one of the most talented and, and wonderful writers that we have in fandom. Her name is Alicia. Her live journal name is slightly more complicated than her, like, actual handle. Um, so we'll post the link to it, I assume. It's a story called Managing Expectations. It features Brad and Nate, who are the, the two people doing the awkward mating dance I described in my fandom safari. Um, it's a, a great story that talks a lot about... Um, so the, one of the main characters, Nate, is, is this kind of... Um, not wide-eyed, but he's trying really hard to keep everything together in a shit situation. And this story deals with um, what it's like for him to come back um, and what it's like for any uh, military individual who's seen combat to come back and how hard that can be and how hard Brad, uh, who's his very, very tall and beautiful Scandinavian Jew lover, um, he, how uh, he's, he's a lot of things rolled into one beautiful package. Um how hard Brad wants to work to to get through to Nate and the things he's willing to do to get there. So it's called Managing Expectations, and it's really, really a great story. So my next story is a Glee story, and I think I'm, like, breaking the seal on Glee uh, for Slash Report here because I don't think you guys have really talked about it before. We haven't. Uh, <laughs> so Glee is, is a guilty pleasure. I think we all acknowledge that it's a guilty, guilty, guilty pleasure. But... It also is presented um, in an extremely popular show that's popular with um, younger people, uh, a canon 
gay romance that uh, has its problems, but at least it's on television. Like, this is the first time that that's been on television and not been, like, who's going to get beaten or, you know, how awful are you going to feel that you have to come out to your family? And instead it's like, this is a kid that's going to be honest and his dad supports him and it's great. And so they introduced uh, this character last season named Blaine who becomes that character, Kurt's boyfriend. And uh, this really, really, really amazing writer that like makes me so green-eyed with jealousy about her writing. Um, her name is R.M., it's rm.livejournal.com, and she's written this huge series called Following Home, which is all about uh, Kurt and Blaine and deciding to stay together beyond high school. And it could, you know, the premise could just be like, oh, look, they went to college and they're having college adventures. But instead it's like, life is hard, especially if you want to do, like, important things with your life and you're stuck in Ohio. How do you get beyond that? And how do you do that? And how do you grow as a couple? And how do you not um, lose each other through all the changes that you're going through? And it's a it's a work in progress. I'm really sorry to wreck a work in progress, except each story is complete, so you can read it up to a point, and you don't have to, like, wait for part 68 of 3,000. Her legend is rm.legend.com, following home, amazing series. Amazing. I cannot recommend this enough. And then the last story that I'm going to recommend is um, a white collar story by Sam Storyteller, who is Sam underscore Storyteller at DreamWit. Um, and I think it's the same at LiveJournal. And it's a story called Never Leave a Trace, which is, um, you guys haven't talked about white collar either. And the, the key piece about white collar is that Matt Bomer is excessively pretty. And he's <laughs> so pretty that he's managed to, uh, to attract himself a couple who, like, have this almost canonical, like, uh, polyamorous relationship. It's beautiful. And so, but, so Neil is a thief who spent some time in jail. And, and the premise of this story is that his FBI partner wants to send him back to jail, uh, to try and ferret out part of, part of the crime that they're trying to solve. And Neil doesn't really want to go back, but he has some unfinished business. So he decides that he is going to go back into jail. And Sam does this amazing, magical realism, fantasy, epic story in the space of, like, three parts, which completely reinvented everything I thought that I knew about White Collar. It was, I, it was just amazing and an incredible reading experience. And the exciting part about that, too, um, is that if you're not familiar with White Collar, Sam rewrote the story uh, or, or edited and expanded the story and has just published it as a prosic uh, novel called Trace. And his writing name is Sam Starbuck. Um, and if, I think if you just Google Trace and Sam Starbuck, you'll be able to find the book. And I read the book um, having read this uh, fic story like a, while, a long while ago. And I wasn't sure what to expect because sometimes prosic is terrible and sometimes prosic is amazing. And this is one of those instances where Profic is amazing. I, I read it all in one sitting. It was actually a completely different and amazing reading experience to the, the white-collar fiction that it started as. But it grew and developed beyond that and has become a piece of um, magical realism that I've recommended to people who have you know, no interest in fan fiction successfully. So those are my recommendations for this week. Sounds great. Uh, although I have to say, we have talked about White Collar before, 
haven't we? Yeah, totally. We totally talked about white collar before, and we are one hundred percent in agreement with you about Matt Boomer being incredibly pretty and distracting. Oh, and good. Totally oh, caught good. himself a no, married love couple. That shit. I'm like, I'm sitting here like dying for the next season already. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, Even though past season had its issues. Well, always it's television. Um, MK, do you want to go next? Yeah, um, I'm going to start with a website wreck and then my fanfiction wrecks because I did get a question like weeks and weeks ago and I'm sorry I delayed answering but I knew that it had to be this episode. Uh, so Glacier wanted to know how we felt about the new DC 52 relaunch which is basically all of DC restarted um, and you would get 52 single issues that were brand new storylines. Um, I haven't read them. Prue hasn't read oh, them. Temple Marker apparently I have a lot has. Of yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings but, about this. If you want, like, a competent response to this, I would recommend Chris Butcher's blog, uh, which is comics212.net, and we'll post the link, but he's basically the manager at The Beguiling, which is uh, arguably the best comic book store in North America. And uh, if he can't answer your question, the long list of comics blogs linked down the side definitely can. So yeah, any question. I can take a very, very short, very short response. Let's see how short this can be. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm a wordy beast. I apologize. 52 has the potential to be great, but they've made a lot of mistakes right out of the box. Not the least of which is uh, retro-aging Barbara to be significantly younger than she was at the in the previous iteration of canon. Of course they and did. And 52, I'm sorry? Of course they did. It's, it's exactly what they did to ruin Birds of Prey TV. Exactly. It's fucking terrible. It, it's like it takes the most competent and badass female in the entire series and is like, you know what she needs to be younger and Batgirl again, because that's completely empowering. I'm so glad that like, I don't look for female empowerment through any genre. I just like watch my shows. (laughs) I do love Batgirl though. I would be so disappointed constantly. (laughs) But when it does it well, it does it really, really well. Sure. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Three wrecks. Two of them comics, one of them not comics. So, Ready, Aim, Fire by Gizm is an Avengers story, which is Tony Steve. And, like, I was reading it, and I already had to tag it on pinboard, like, mid-story, because I already knew that it was genius when I read Steve sending Tony a text message that was all caps, because he didn't know how to use his phone properly. And it was, like, Tony had been like, do you want to come to this party? This time, this place. And Steve was like, dear Tony, I am in a meeting with Director Fury. Thank you for inviting me. I will attend, but maybe quite late. Sincerely, Steve Rogers. That's all you need to know. (laughs) Steve Rogers is amazing. Uh, The next one is called Mr. July by Gibralis, which is another Avengers story in which there's actually an evil league of bad guys who are just dedicated to getting Captain America naked. And Tony is the only one who is trying to defend his virtue. And, like, everyone thinks it's hilarious. Can I just say, I read that story and I loved it. Is it really, can we really call them evil if they're trying to do a public service to us? Well, they do try to hurt some people, but, you know, for the most part, I'm like, yeah, do it. Get them naked. Exactly. I feel like they're working for us, you know? If they're people who aren't smart enough to get out of the way when they could see Captain America naked, that's their problem. Agreed. So let's just say that they are, quote, evil. Yeah. Um, and the third story I'm going to wreck is a Hawaii Five-O story <laughs> to Prue and Hoyden's, like, unending pain with me, because I still love Hawaii Five-O, which is called Textual Analysis by Sawara, which has, like, you know, a premise that sounds terrible, but is actually great, in which uh, 
some government official somewhere in America was like, yeah, we're totally going to fund this research book in which uh, one guy tags along with different law enforcement partners and like analyzes their different styles of teamwork. And then we can figure out which one is the best and try to encourage it to have more efficient law force enforcement. And everything is going great until he goes along with Steve and Danny. <laughs> and they think it's fine until the book comes out and the book calls them the married couple. And everyone is like, oh, you're so married. And they're like, we're not married. We're super not married. And then they're like, oh God, we're totally married. And it's very entertaining. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was so good for me. He jumps out of a fucking airplane and rescues someone midair. How can you keep watching this show? Because, because two episodes after he jumps out of an airplane to rescue someone midair, the person he rescued goes to rescue him in North Korea to like pay back the favor. It was so good for me. He and Danny are super married. Danny has moved in with him now, like, canonically, and then they have an episode where they are more married than that. Wait, really? Yeah. The episode of the North Korea is more married than when Danny moves in with Steve. I can't believe that he actually moved in with them. Yeah, it was great. That's amazing. (laughs) It's so beautiful. I think you should make your Rex Proust. We can end this. Yeah, we have to end this. All right. I have three recommendations, and all of them are in Avengers fandom. The first one is called Cosmetic Damage Only by Valtier. And it's basically, it's essentially smut. Uh, Steve, <laughs> you know, they have, like, acrobatic, enthusiastic, athletic sex. And, like, Tony gets a little marked up. And Steve worries about that because he's so strong. And, like, Tony, despite, you know, having the Iron Man suit, is just, like, a regular dude. And Tony is mostly concerned that Steve is going to stop bruising him, which uh, works for me on such, like, an intensely strong spiritual (laughs) level. And everyone should check that shit out. It's a short, super hot read. The next story that I'm going to wreck is called The Modern World is Awesome and So Are You. It's written on the Avengers kink meme. It's an anonymous author. I don't know who you are, but you rock. It's essentially Tony keeps breaking Steve out of shield headquarters like obviously this has been jossed by oh my god i can't believe i say these words but this has been jossed by the trailer of the joss weed movie but, <laughs> sorry go ahead <laughs> i know but it's it's a, it's an excellent like fun effervescently charming story where tony just keeps finding excuses to like break steve out and they go explore the modern world because there's so many cool things about our current lives and Steve just can't sit in the dark and be sad all the time that it's no longer 1945 okay like that's depressing as fuck and he's already a virgin the situation is bad we have to like fix this somehow it's it's cute as hell everyone should read it I just get giggles every time I think about the story and I reread it like all the time whenever I'm in a bad mood and my last recommendation is technically Steve Tony, but I actually view it as more Jen because it's definitely a story that's about Tony Stark and his relationship with robots. Now, I don't know whether or not the Slash reporters who listen to this have picked up yet, but I really, really like robots. Like, probably more than I should admit in public that I like robots. Like, one day I want, like, a robot as best friend slash pet. Like, all I've ever wanted growing up was, like, Rosie, but I wouldn't make her clean up after me. She would be my bro. Like... I've always just loved robots. And this is a story about Tony and Tony's robots. Like, if you were the type of person who, like, gets sad whenever you have to replace technology because, like, you feel your old laptop is, like, upset that you're replacing it, this is the story for you. It's so sweet. And it has this, like, because Tony, like, builds his own friends. He's always built his own friends. You can't look at his relationship with Jarvis and Dummy and not think that that guy 
built his own friends and his own friends that he's going to verbally abuse and dummy. Um, incredibly charming, very well written. And just to go back over, cause I missed two of the authors. Uh, Oh, I missed one of the authors, but degrees of separation is the story, uh, with Tony and Tony's robots. And it's by Plingo cat. Um, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but it's such a sweet story. And I think that absolutely everyone should read it. And that's it. Awesome. Um, all right. I think that wraps us for the week. Temple Marker, thank you so much again for coming on and like explaining to noob me all about the world of comics. <laughs> You're so welcome. Mostly I really hope that I didn't terrify and scare everyone off. <laughs> no, I think that you broke it down and be, well, as accessible as comics are ever going to get. I think you broke it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because it is awesome. Like the, the core thing that everyone should take away is that as crazy as it is, it's awesome and so worth it to get involved in it. Oh, that sounds good. Alrighty, that's us signing off for the week. Slash Reporters, thanks for tuning in. And um, I think we'll probably have an end date for season one soon. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. There's no yellow cake mix in this country. This is why we fought the revolution.